Chapter 18 of Lives of the Engineers, George and Robert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Andy Minter. Lives of the Engineers, George and Robert Stevenson, by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 18 George Stevenson's Closing Years, Illness and Death. In describing the completion of the series of great works detailed in the preceding chapter, we have somewhat anticipated the closing years of George Stevenson's life. He could not fail to take an anxious interest in the success of his son's designs, and he accordingly paid many visits to Conway and to Menai during the progress of the works. He was present on the occasion of the floating and racing of the first Conway tube, and there witnessed a clear proof of the soundness of Robert's judgment as to the efficiency and strength of the tubular bridge, of which he had at first expressed some doubts. But before the like test could be applied at the Britannia Bridge, George Stevenson's mortal anxieties were at an end, for he had then ceased from all his labours. Towards the close of his life, George Stevenson almost entirely withdrew from the active pursuit of his profession, he devoted himself chiefly to his extensive collieries and lime-works, taking a local interest only in such projected railways as were calculated to open up new markets for their products. At home he lived the life of a country gentleman, enjoying his garden and grounds, and indulging his love of nature, which, through all his busy life, had never left him. It was not until the year 1845 that he took an active interest in horticultural pursuits, then he began to build new melon-houses, pineries, and vineries of great extent, and he now seemed as eager to excel all other growers of exotic plants in his neighbourhood as he had been to surpass the villagers of Killingworth in the production of gigantic cabbages and cauliflowers some thirty years before. He had a pine-house built sixty-eight feet in length, and a pinery a hundred and forty feet. Workmen were constantly employed in enlarging them, until at length he had no fewer than ten glass forcing-houses heated with hot water, which he was one of the first in that neighbourhood to make use of for such a purpose. He did not take so much pleasure in flowers as in fruits. At one of the county agricultural meetings he said that he intended yet to grow pineapples at Tapton as big as pumpkins. The only man to whom he would knock under was his friend Paxton, the gardener to the Duke of Devonshire, and he was so old in the service, and so skilful that he could scarcely hope to beat him. Yet his queen, Pines, did take the first prize at a competition with the Duke, though this was not until shortly after his death, when the plants had become more fully grown. His grapes also took the first prize at Rotherham, at a competition open to all England. He was extremely successful in producing melons, having invented a method of suspending them in baskets of wire gauze, which, by relieving the stalk from tension, allowed nutrition to proceed more freely, and better enabled the fruit to grow and ripen. He took much pride also in his growth of cucumbers. He raised them very fine and large, but he could not make them grow straight. Place them as he would, notwithstanding all his propping of them and humouring them by modifying the application of heat and the admission of light for the purpose of effecting his object, they would still insist on growing crooked in their own way. At last he had a number of glass cylinders made at Newcastle for the purpose of an experiment. Into these the growing cucumbers were inserted, and then he succeeded in growing them perfectly straight. 
Carrying one of the new products into his house one day, and exhibiting it to a party of visitors, he told them of the expedient he had adopted, and added gleefully, "'I think I've bothered them now.' Mr. Stevenson also carried on farming operations with some success. He experimented on manure, and fed cattle after methods of his own. He was very particular as to breed and build in stock-breeding. "'You see, sir,' he said to one gentleman, "'I like to see the cows back, at a gradient, something like this,' drawing an imaginary line with his hand. "'And then the ribs or girders will carry more flesh than if they were so or so.' When he attended the county agricultural meetings, which he frequently did, he was accustomed to take part in the discussions, and he brought the same vigorous practical mind to bear on the questions of tillage, drainage, and farm economy, which he had been accustomed to exercise on mechanical and engineering matters. All his early affection for birds and animals revived. He had favourite dogs and cows and horses, and again he began to keep rabbits, and to pride himself on the beauty of his breed. There was not a bird's nest upon the grounds that he did not know of, and from day to day he went round watching the progress which the birds made with their building, carefully guarding them from injury. No one was more minutely acquainted with the habits of British birds, the result of a long, loving, and close observation of nature. At Tapton he remembered the failure of his early experiment in hatching birds' eggs by heat, and he now performed it successfully, being able to secure a proper apparatus for maintaining a uniform temperature. He was also curious about the breeding and fattening of fowls, and when his friend Edward Pease of Darlington visited him at Tapton, he explained a method which he had invented for fattening chickens in half the usual time. Mrs. Stevenson tried to keep bees, but found they would not thrive at Tapton. Many hives perished, and there was no case of success. The cause of failure was a puzzle to the engineer, but one day his acute powers of observation enabled him to unravel it. At the foot of the hill on which Tapton House stands, he saw some bees trying to rise up from amongst the grass, laden with honey and wax. They were already exhausted, as if with long flying, and then it occurred to him that the height at which the house stood above the bees' feeding ground rendered it difficult for them to reach their hives when heavy laden, and hence they sank exhausted. He afterwards incidentally mentioned the circumstance to Mr. Jesse, the naturalist, who concurred in his view as to the cause of failure, and was much struck by the keen observation which had led to its solution. Mr. Stevenson had none of the indoor habits of the student. He read very little, for reading is a habit which is generally acquired in youth, and his youth and manhood had been for the most part spent in hard work. Books wearied him, and sent him to sleep. Novels excited his feelings too much, and he avoided them, though he would occasionally read through a philosophical book on a subject in which he felt particularly interested. He wrote very few letters with his own hand, nearly all his letters were dictated, and he avoided even dictation when he could. His greatest pleasure was in conversation, from which he gathered most of his imparted information. It was his practice, when about to set out on a journey by railway, to walk along the train before it started, and to look into the carriages to see if he could find a conversable face. On one of these occasions, at the Euston station, he discovered in a carriage a very handsome, manly, and intelligent face, which he afterwards found was that of the late Lord Denman. He was on his way down to his seat at Stony Middleton in Derbyshire. 
Mr. Stevenson entered the carriage, and the two were shortly engaged in interesting conversation. It turned upon chronometry and horology, and the engineer amazed his lordship by the extent of his knowledge on the subject, in which he displayed as much minute information, even down to the latest improvements in watchmaking, as if he had been bred a watchmaker and lived by the trade. Lord Denman was curious to know how a man whose time must have been mainly engrossed by engineering had gathered so much knowledge on a subject quite out of his own line, and he asked the question. I learnt clock-making and watch-making, was the answer, while a working man at Killingworth, when I made a little money in my spare hours, by cleaning the pitman's clocks and watches, and since then I have kept up my information on the subject. This led to further questions, and then Mr. Stevenson told Lord Denman the interesting story of his life, which held him entranced during the remainder of the journey. Many of his friends readily accepted invitations to Tapton House to enjoy his hospitality, which never failed. With them he would fight his battles o'er again, reverting to his battle for the locomotive, and he was never tired of telling, nor were his auditors of listening to, the lively anecdotes with which he was accustomed to illustrate the struggles of his early career. While walking in the woods or through the grounds, he would arrest his friend's attention by allusion to some simple object, such as a leaf, a blade of grass, a bit of bark, a nest of birds, or an ant carrying its eggs across the path, and descant in glowing terms upon the creative power of the divine mechanician, whose contrivances were so exhaustless and so wonderful. This was a theme upon which he was often accustomed to dwell in reverential admiration, when in the society of his more intimate friends. One night, when walking under the stars and gazing up into the field of suns, each the probable centre of a system forming the Milky Way, a friend said to him, "'What an insignificant creature is man in sight of so immense a creation as that!' "'Yes,' was his reply, "'but how wonderful a creature also is man, to be able to think and reason, and even in some measure to comprehend works so infinite!' A microscope, which he had brought down to Tapton, was a source of immense enjoyment to him, and he was never tired of contemplating the minute wonders which it revealed. One evening, when some friends were visiting him, he induced them each to puncture their skin, so as to draw blood, in order that he might examine the globules through the microscope. One of the gentlemen present was a teetotaler, and Mr. Stevenson pronounced his blood to be the most lively of the whole. He had a theory of his own about the movement of the globules in the blood, which has since become familiar. It was that they were respectively charged with electricity, positive at one end and negative at the other, and that thus they attracted and repelled each other, causing a circulation. No sooner did he observe anything new than he immediately set about devising a reason for it. His training in mechanics, his practical familiarity with matter in all its forms, and the strong bent of his mind— led him first of all to seek for a mechanical explanation. And yet he was ready to admit that there was something in the principle of life, so mysterious and inexplicable, which baffled mechanics and seemed to dominate over and control them. He did not care much either for abstruse mechanics, but only for experimental and practical, as is usually the case with those whose knowledge has been self-acquired. Even at his advanced age, the spirit of frolic had not left him, when proceeding from Chesterfield Station to Tapton House with his friends, he would almost invariably challenge them to a race up the steep path, partly formed of stone steps along the hillside, and he would struggle, as of old, to keep the front place, 
though by this time his wind greatly failed. He would occasionally invite an old friend to take a quiet wrestle with him on the lawn, to keep up his skill, and perhaps to try some new knack of throwing. In the evening he would sometimes indulge his visitors by reciting the old pastoral of Damon and Phyllis, or singing his favourite song of John Anderson, my Joe. But his greatest glory among those with whom he was most intimate was a crowdy. Let's have a crowdy night, he would say, and forthwith a kettle of boiling water was ordered in with a basin of oatmeal. Taking a large bowl containing a sufficiency of hot water and placing it between his knees, he poured in oatmeal with one hand and stirred the mixture vigorously with the other. When enough meal had been added and the stirring was completed, the crowdy was made. It was then supped with new milk, and Stevenson generally pronounced it capital. It was the diet to which he had been accustomed when a working man, and all the dainties with which he had become familiar in recent years had not spoilt his simple tastes. To enjoy Crowdy at his age, besides, indicated that he still possessed that quality on which no doubt much of his practical success in life had depended, a strong and healthy digestion. He would also frequently invite to his house the humbler companions of his early life, and take pleasure in talking over old times with them. He never assumed any of the bearings of a great man on such occasions, but treated the visitors with the same friendliness and respect as if they had been his equals, sending them away, pleased with themselves, and delighted with him. At other times needy men who had known him in youth would knock at his door, and they were never refused access. But if he heard of any misconduct on their part, he would rate them soundly. One who knew him intimately in private life had seen him exhorting such backsliders and denouncing their misconduct and imprudence with the tears streaming down his cheeks, and he would generally conclude by opening his purse and giving them the help which they needed to make a fresh start in the world. Mr. Stevenson's life at Tapton during his latter years was occasionally diversified with a visit to London. His engineering business having become limited, he generally went there for the purpose of visiting friends, or to see what there was fresh going on. He found a new race of engineers springing up on all hands, men who knew him not, and his London journeys gradually ceased to yield him pleasure. A friend used to take him to the opera, but by the end of the first act he was generally in a profound slumber. Yet on one occasion he enjoyed a visit to the Haymarket with a party of friends on his birthday to see T.P. Cook in Black-Eyed Susan, if that can be called enjoyment which kept him in a state of tears throughout half the performance. At other times he visited Newcastle, which always gave him great pleasure. He would, on such occasions, go out to Killingworth and seek up old friends, and if the people whom he knew were too retiring and shrunk into their cottages, he went and sought them there. Striking the floor with his stick and holding his noble person upright, he would say, in his own kind way, "'Well, and how's all here to-day?' To the last he had always a warm heart for Newcastle and its neighbourhood. Sir Robert Peel, on more than one occasion, invited George Stevenson to his mansion at Drayton, where he was accustomed to assemble round him men of the highest distinction in art, science, and legislation during the intervals of his parliamentary life. The first invitation was respectfully declined. Sir Robert invited him a second time, and a second time he declined. "'I have no great ambition,' he said, "'to mix in fine company, and perhaps should feel out of my element among such high folks.' 
but Sir Robert a third time pressed him to come down to Tamworth early in January, 1845, when he would meet Buckland, Follett, and others well known to both. "'Well, Sir Robert,' said he, "'I feel your kindness very much, and can no longer refuse. I will come down and join your party.' Mr. Stevenson's strong powers of observation, together with his native humour and shrewdness, imparted to his conversation at all times much vigour and originality, and made him, to young and old, a delightful companion. Though mainly an engineer, he was also a profound thinker on many scientific questions, and there was scarcely a subject of speculation, or a department of recondite science, on which he had not employed his faculties in such a way as to have formed large and original views. At Drayton the conversation usually turned upon such topics, and Mr. Stevenson freely joined in it. On one occasion an animated discussion took place between himself and Dr. Buckland on one of his favourite theories as to the formation of coal, but the result was that Dr. Buckland, a much greater master of tongue-fence than Mr. Stevenson, completely silenced him. Next morning, before breakfast, when he was walking in the grounds, deeply pondering, Sir William Follett came up and asked what he was thinking about. "'Why, Sir William, I'm thinking over that argument I had with Buckland last night. I know I'm right, and that if I only had the command of words which he has, I'd have beaten him.' "'Let me know all about it,' said Sir William, "'and I'll see what I can do for you.' The two sat down in an arbour, and the astute lawyer made himself thoroughly acquainted with the points of the case— entering into it with all the zeal of an advocate about to plead the dearest interests of his client. After he had mastered the subject, Sir William rose up, rubbing his hands with glee, and said, "'Now I am ready for him.' Sir Robert Peel was made acquainted with the plot, and adroitly introduced the subject of the controversy after dinner. The result was that in the argument which followed, the man of science was overcome by the man of law, and Sir William Follett had at all points the mastery over Dr. Buckland. "'What do you say, Mr. Stevenson?' asked Sir Robert, laughing. "'Why,' said he, "'I will say only this, that of all the powers above and under the earth, there seems to me no power so great as the gift of the gab.' One Sunday, when the party had just returned from church, they were standing together on the terrace near the hall, and observed in the distance a railway train flashing along, tossing behind it a long white plume of steam. "'Now, Buckland,' said Stevenson, "'I have a poser for you. Can you tell me what is the power that is driving that train?' "'Well,' said the other, "'I suppose it is one of your big engines.' "'But what drives the engine?' "'No, very likely a canny Newcastle driver. What do you say to the light of the sun?' "'How can that be?' asked the doctor. "'It is nothing else.' said the engineer. It is light, bottled up in the earth for tens of thousands of years. Light, absorbed by plants and vegetables, being necessary for the condensation of carbon during the process of their growth, if it be not carbon in another form. And now, after being buried in the earth for long ages in fields of coal, that latent light is again brought forth and liberated, made to work as in that locomotive for great human purposes." During the same visit, Mr. Stevenson one evening repeated his experiment with blood drawn from the finger, submitting it to the microscope, in order to show the curious circulation of the globules. He set the example by pricking his own thumb, and the other guests, by turn in like manner, gave up a small portion of their blood for the purpose of ascertaining the comparative liveliness of their circulation. 
When Sir Robert Peel's turn came, Mr. Stevenson said he was curious to know how the blood globules of a great politician would conduct themselves. Sir Robert held forth his finger for the purpose of being pricked, but once and again he sensitively shrunk back, and at length the experiment, as far as he was concerned, was abandoned. Sir Robert Peel's sensitiveness to pain was extreme, and yet he was destined, a few years after, to die a death of the most distressing agony. In 1847, the year before his death, Mr. Stevenson was again invited to join a distinguished party at Drayton Manor, and to assist in the ceremony of formally opening the Trent Valley Railway, which had been originally designed and laid out by himself many years before. The first sod of the railway had been cut by the Prime Minister in November 1845, during the time when Mr. Stevenson was abroad on the business of the Spanish Railway. The formal opening took place on the 26th of June, 1847, the line having been thus constructed in less than two years. What a change had come over the spirit of the landed gentry since the time when George Stevenson had first projected a railway through that district. Then they were up in arms against him, characterising him as the devastator and spoiler of their estates. Now he was hailed as one of the greatest benefactors of the age— Sir Robert Peel, the chief political personage in England, welcomed him as a guest and a friend, and spoke of him as the chief among practical philosophers. A dozen members of Parliament, seven baronets, with all the landed magnates of the district, assembled to celebrate the opening of the railway. The clergy were there to bless the enterprise, and to bid all hail to railway progress as enabling them to carry on with greater facility those operations in connection with religion which were calculated to be so beneficial to the country. The army, speaking through the mouth of General Accourt, acknowledged the vast importance of railways as tending to improve the military defences of the country, and representatives from eight corporations were there to acknowledge the great benefits which railways had conferred upon the merchants, tradesmen, and working classes of their respective towns and cities. In the spring of 1848, Mr. Stevenson was invited to Whittington House, near Chesterfield, the residence of his friend and former pupil, Mr. Swanick, to meet the distinguished American, Emerson. Upon being introduced, they did not immediately engage in conversation, but presently Stevenson jumped up, took Emerson by the collar, and giving him one of his friendly shakes, asked how it was that in England we could always tell an American. This led to an interesting conversation, in the course of which Emerson said how much he had been everywhere struck by the haleness and comeliness of the English men and women, and then they diverged into a further discussion of the influences which air, climate, moisture, soil, and other conditions exercised upon the physical and moral development of a people. The conversation was next directed to the subject of electricity, upon which Stevenson launched out enthusiastically, explaining his views by several simple and striking illustrations. From thence it gradually turned to the events of his own life, which he related in so graphic a manner as completely to rivet the attention of the American. Afterwards Emerson said that it was worth crossing the Atlantic to have seen Stevenson alone. He had such native force of character and vigour of intellect. The rest of Mr. Stevenson's days were spent quietly at Tapton, amongst his dogs, his rabbits, and his birds. When not engaged about the works connected with his collieries, he was occupied in horticulture and farming. He continued proud of his flowers, his fruits, and his crops, 
and the old spirit of competition was still strong within him. Although he had for some time been in delicate health, and his hand shook from nervous affection, he appeared to possess a sound constitution. Emerson had observed of him that he had the lives of many men in him, but perhaps the American spoke figuratively, in reference to his vast stores of experience. It appeared that he had never completely recovered from the attack of pleurisy, which seized him during his return from Spain. As late, however, as the 26th of July, 1848, he felt himself sufficiently well to be able to attend a meeting of the Institute of Mechanical Engineers at Birmingham, and to read to the members his paper on the fallacies of the rotatory engine. It was his last appearance before them. Shortly after his return to Tapton, he had an attack of intermittent fever, from which he seemed to be recovering, when a sudden effusion of blood from the lungs carried him off on the 12th of August, 1848, in the 67th year of his age. When all was over, Robert wrote to Edward Pease, With deep pain I inform you, as one of his oldest friends, of the death of my dear father this morning at twelve o'clock, after about ten days' illness from severe fever. Mr. Starbuck, who was also present, wrote, The favourable symptoms of yesterday morning were, towards evening, followed by a serious change for the worse. This continued during the night, and early this morning it became evident that he was sinking. At a few minutes before twelve to-day he breathed his last. All that the most devoted and unremitting care of Mrs. Stevenson and the skill of medicine could accomplish has been done, but in vain. George Stevenson's remains were followed to the grave by a large body of his workpeople, by whom he was greatly admired and beloved. They remembered him as a kind master, who was ever ready actively to promote all measures for their moral, physical, and mental improvement. The inhabitants of Chesterfield evinced their respect for the deceased by suspending business, closing their shops, and joining in the funeral procession, which was headed by the corporation of the town. Many of the surrounding gentry also attended. The body was interred in Trinity Church, Chesterfield, where a simple tablet marks the great engineer's last resting place. The statue of George Stevenson, which the Liverpool and Manchester and Grand Junction companies had commissioned, was on its way to England when his death occurred, and it served for a monument, though his best monument will always be his works. The statue referred to was placed in St. George's Hall, Liverpool. A full-length statue of him by Bailey was also erected a few years later in the noble vestibule of the London and North Western Station in Euston Square. A subscription for the purpose was set on foot by the Society of Mechanical Engineers, of which he had been founder and president. A few advertisements were inserted in the newspapers inviting subscriptions, and it is a notable fact that the voluntary offerings included an average of two shillings each from 3,150 working men, who embraced this opportunity of doing honour to their distinguished fellow workmen. But unquestionably, the finest and most appropriate statue to the memory of George Stevenson is that erected in 1862, after the design of John Luff at Newcastle-upon-Tyne. It is in the immediate neighbourhood of the Literary and Philosophical Institute, to which both George and his son Robert were so much indebted in their early years. Close to the great Stevenson locomotive factory, established by the shrewdness of the father, and in the vicinity of the high-level bridge, one of the grandest products of the genius of the son. The head of Stevenson, as expressed in this noble work, is massive, characteristic, and faithful, and the attitude of the figure is simple, yet manly and energetic. 
It stands on a pedestal, at the respective corners of which are sculptured the recumbent figures of a pitman, a mechanic, an engine-driver, and a plate-layer. The statue appropriately stands in a very thoroughfare of working men, thousands of whom see it daily as they pass to and from their work, and we can imagine them as they look up to Stevenson's manly figure, applying to it the words addressed by Robert Nicoll to Robert Burns, with perhaps still greater appropriateness. Before the proudest of the earth we stand with an uplifted brow. Like us thou wast a toiling man, and we are noble now. The portrait, prefixed to this volume, gives a good indication of George Stevenson's shrewd, kind, honest, manly face. His fair, clear countenance was ruddy, and seemingly glowed with health. The forehead was large and high, projecting over the eyes, and there was that massive breadth across the lower part which is usually observed in men of eminent constructive skill. The mouth was firmly marked, and shrewdness and humour lurked there as well as in the keen grey eye. His frame was compact, well-knit, and rather spare. His hair became grey at an early age, and towards the close of his life it was of a pure silky whiteness. He dressed neatly in black, wearing a white neckcloth, and his face, his person, and his deportment at once arrested attention and marked the gentleman. End of chapter 18